0: Uh, You have to remember, we've been talking about Genesis for a long time, and it's been months since we've said anything about this, but you have to remember that the book of Genesis is not really written as a book. It's written as a section of a book, and the book is called, referred to as the law, the law of Moses. It's referred to as the Pentateuch. Um, It is the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament and broke it into sections, Um, but Genesis is section one, or if you will, chapter one of his giant book. So um, we have to remember that as we go into this, because uh, it's setting the stage for us to understand everywhere that he goes after that. And so I want to remind you, when Moses writes the book of Genesis, He is writing at the end of his life uh, in the wilderness before the children of Israel go into the promised land. And he's writing so that they will have a record of everything from creation up until the time that they go into the promised land so that when they get into the promised land, they will not forget the foundational things that are supposed to steer them for the rest of their lives. So the reason I wanted to preach through Genesis on Sunday mornings, which is a big undertaking because it takes a long time, right? It's 50 chapters. And the reason I said this is worth us doing is because I wanted all of us to have that same overview, that same big foundation that says as we move forward in life, we have to understand what came behind, what happened before. And we have to have that as a context. So as we get ready to understand the end of the book of Genesis, I want to start at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So take your Bibles and open to, if you, if you open to Genesis chapter 50 and then turn one page to the right, you'll be in Exodus chapter one. And we want to get to Exodus chapter one this morning because Exodus is the second section of the book of the law. And as we get into Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to start in in verse 5, and I'm just going to read this little section so you have some understanding, because where we left this off last week, Jacob died and was buried, and now the torch has been passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and now to Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That's where we left it last week. Let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Remember, we saw that a couple of weeks ago. There were 70 direct descendants of Jacob who moved from Canaan into Egypt during the famine, right? Seventy direct uh, male descendants, wives, children, servants, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two or 300 people total when you count everybody, went into the land of Egypt, Right? Verse 6 Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. And here's a key verse Now a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel." The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, <clears throat> and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and in all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Okay, now I'm not skipping Genesis 50 and launching a new series on Exodus this morning, so take a deep <laughs> breath, it's okay. But um, I do want you to get where it goes from here because as exodus opens we have now fast forwarded hundreds of years right all told it was about 400 years from the time that jacob and his band of 70 came into egypt there was about 400 years that the that the children of israel lived in egypt and it got progressively worse for them toward the end right? Where we're in Genesis 49 and 50, we're seeing that God is blessing them. He is multiplying them. They have the uh, support of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is making sure that Egypt is providing all the goods that they need, giving them land and all of this kind of stuff. It looks like this incredible blessing, but time goes by. And, and he begins Exodus by saying, you know what? Eventually, Joseph died and, and all those generations passed. And as time went on, it got harder and harder to be an Israelite in the land of Egypt. And it got so bad, as you probably know, that finally this Pharaoh said, listen, we're gonna pass a law that's basically about ethnic cleansing. We are going to make sure that every male child that is born to the Israelites will be killed at birth. So we're gonna kill all the males and that's how we're gonna shut down this growth of these people, right? But of course, God protected them Their mothers did not kill them. They found ways to hide them. And one of those mothers had a child named Moses, right? She puts him in a basket. When she knows that Pharaoh's daughter is coming to bathe in the Nile, floats him toward Pharaoh's daughter like any good person. She hears a baby crying and goes running to its aid. She finds this child. Immediately she knows he's a Hebrew. Why? Because he's circumcised. And so she knows what she's dealing with here, but her heart goes out and she adopts him as her own and he is raised in the palace of Pharaoh and that's how the book of uh, Exodus takes off from there, right? So all of that is still in the past to the original readers who are reading this, right? As they're getting ready to go into the promised land, this is their history. What he's saying is 400 years pass. And in those 400 years, things get tough, but God saved them eventually, even out of Egypt. Just as God saved them out of the famine and brought them into Egypt, He saves them out of slavery later in the book of Exodus and brings them out of Egypt and eventually brings them into the promised land. Why am I telling you all this? Because we need context to understand Scripture Guys, it is a gigantic mistake to just open up your Bible, stick your finger here and go, this is God's word for me today, right? We need to understand his word in its context. It only means what it was intended to mean. So Moses is writing this context at the end of his life. Children of Israel about to go into the promised land. There are some things that are so important at the end of Moses' life that he says, if they don't remember these things, they're toast. As they go into the promised land, if they don't have hold of some giant principles that we've learned from the book of Genesis, they are toast. The land they're about to enter is filled with pagan people. That means they worship that which is found in nature. That means to them, there are many gods and you just choose your own God and make, it, make whatever you want to be your God. If you want a rock to be your God, then that will be your God. If you want a squirrel to be your God, that will be your God. If you want to worship the sun, that's up to you. But find something in nature and worship that. That's what paganism is. <clears throat> and so there are certain truths that we have to understand or cling to because as they go into a pagan society, if they don't cling to these absolute truths, they are going to get washed away in the flow of the river of falsehood when it comes to spiritual things. Does that make sense? So he wants them to understand what he's been giving them in Genesis. For example, just imagine this, the plight they were going into as they went in to the promised land. Imagine, if you could, in your wildest imagination, imagine living in a society that doesn't have respect for the one true God. Just imagine, I know it'd be hard to imagine, but just try to imagine that. Imagine what it would be like to try to live in a society that believes, by and large, they believe that nature is all that there is, right? That everything that is in nature is what should be worshipped because nature is all that there is. Imagine living in a society that believes that the cosmos is everything that ever was, is, or ever will be. That the physical universe, the material things, is all that there is. Can you imagine living in a world where there are people who think that? Imagine how that kind of thinking could impact a culture. Imagine how easily a culture could could get so far away from what is good, what is right, what is true, what is righteous, what is holy, how easy it would be to get away from that if you swallowed this idea that somehow there was no creator, that somehow uh, everything in nature is all that there is. Everyone in a society like that, I know it's hard to imagine, but everyone in a society like that would determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. Imagine. Well, that's the kind of culture that the Israelites were coming into when they entered the promised land. And God knew that the only way for them to survive and thrive in the land of Canaan was going to be for them to be able to cling to some absolute big picture truths. They were going to have to know them to be true. They were going to have to hold on to them. And they were going to have to live based on those truths. And if they didn't, they would easily get swallowed up into their culture. And that's what God was trying to protect them from when he gave them the law. So with all that context in mind, I want to take a few minutes now to cover chapter 50, <clears throat> and, and I'll just be straight with you, chapter 50, in my view, is essentially a transition. It's a way of him saying, okay, so I gave you all of this from the creation up through the patriarchs, and now we're going to transition into the story of the exodus. And so he's wrapping it up. He's putting a bow on it. He spent, I don't know, five chapters talking about the last few days of Jacob. He's not going to spend five verses on the last few days of Joseph. He's just going to wrap it up for us so that we can move on to Exodus. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 50 and see what God has to say to us today. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him because Jacob had just died. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it for such is the period required for embalming And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Now, you probably remember from 10th grade history class that the Egyptians came up with this amazing thing called embalming, which is why we still are able to find mummies in the crypts and in the pyramids uh, and the tombs that are there in ancient Egypt because they had this embalming process, which would keep the body from decaying in its normal way. And so as a way to honor their great people, they would embalm them and then they would put them into these tombs. Okay. So there's this embalming process and the whole nation mourns for 70 days. Verse four, when the days of mourning for him were passed, "'Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, "'If now I have found favor in your sight, "'please speak to Pharaoh, saying, "'My father made me swear, saying, "'Behold, I'm about to die in my grave, "'which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. "'There you shall bury me. "'Now therefore, please let me go up "'and bury my father, then I will return.' "'Pharaoh said, "'Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear.' So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? That all the whole cabinet, all of the key generals, all of the key government leaders, all of the people that were close to the top leadership went to this funeral. There was this giant procession that left Egypt and went back into Canaan so that Joseph's father, Jacob, could be buried. Verse 8. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there for a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. So they just stopped at this landmark all of them, the thousands of them that were in this procession, they all just stopped at this landmark and they, they had seven more days devoted to mourning and weeping and fasting because they had lost uh, Jacob. Verse 11, "'Now when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, "'This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. "'Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan.'" And that's just a a name that means uh, Egyptian mourning. Verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for the burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him. To bury his father. So, all all Moses is doing for us here is wrapping this up. He's saying, okay, this has been about the birth of the nation of Israel. They came from this guy, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He was the father of Joseph. He died while he was in Egypt, but he insisted that he be buried among his fathers. We talked about that last week. If you want to understand why, go back and listen to last week's message on that. And he goes back now, and they have this incredible time of mourning, 70 days of mourning in Egypt, seven days of mourning along the road, and then finally a memorial service and a burial site and all of that, and they bring closure to the life of Jacob. Pick it up now in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Aren't these guys awesome? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. When his brothers also came back, uh, came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order um, to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. I just have to stop for a second and comment on verse 17. First of all, um, it it says when they came to him and said, "Hey, Dad said to tell you to be nice to us." Okay. And I'm so I'm so intrigued by his response to that. Verse 17 says he wept when he heard them say that. He wept. And I thought, why did he weep? And I think he wept because they still didn't get it. He, He had forgiven them before they ever came back and met him in Egypt, right? He had already forgiven them. And then when they came and they had their reunion and all that, he expressed to them, Don't worry, because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so there's complete restoration in our relationship. There's complete forgiveness. We're all just participating in God's activity in the earth. And they lived with him now for all of this time. And they're raising their families there under his protection, under his provision. He's the one that's taking care of everybody. And still, when dad dies, their first thought is, "Uh uh-oh, I hope we don't get in trouble. And they immediately go to him and they're like, they make up this story, which is an absurd story in the first place. If that's what Jacob wanted Joseph to know, wouldn't he have told Joseph that? Why would you say, hey, like, let's just say you're on death row, right? And the, and the president is on his way out and he's starting to pardon people. And you send him a letter and say, hey, the former president told me to tell you that he really meant to pardon me. So if you would just let me out, right? That's what he's doing. And, the, and Joseph looks at his brothers, and I, I'm not sure that the Bible always records every word. I'm guessing he said some words the Bible didn't want to record. When he looks at these idiots and says, what is wrong with you guys? And he begins to weep because they don't understand forgiveness. They don't get it. They are still walking around in the burden of their guilt. They are still walking around in the sense of fear and foreboding that comes with knowing you are guilty and there is someone who has the power to punish you. And they are walking around in that fear and carrying the weight of that guilt with them wherever they go, even though it's been visited two or three times now and all of the track record shows he has forgiven them. And he has to remind them again, I have forgiven you. And I looked at these guys and I went, These people are morons. And then I looked in the mirror (laughs) and I thought, You know what? We do this so often with God. I mean, we, many of us as Christians, we know what the scripture says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we meet with God and we weep with God and we confess and we we repent and we turn away from our sin, but then the enemy whispers in our ear, you're still that person, right? That's why I love that song we sang today, I am a child of God. Don't talk to me about my past. Don't talk to me about who I used to be. Don't talk to me about what I deserve. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has paid my price. I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. Guys, we need to appropriate the forgiveness that God has offered to us. Now listen, if you've, never, if you've never gotten right with God, if you've never accepted his forgiveness, that's an entirely different story. You need to get right with God. You need, to, you need to meet with him and you need to bow before his throne and you need to confess and you need to turn your life over to him. There is no other way. But I'm talking for now to those of us who have done that and we still walk around Crippled under the weight of this guilt that presses down upon us, and the enemy keeps going, Yeah, you better carry that. You're gonna have to carry that the rest of your life. Nothing you can do to undo what you've already done. And you know what? There is nothing you can do to undo what you've already done. The enemy trips us up with half truths. There's nothing you can do. You can't turn the clock back, you can't unspill the milk. But you know what? Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for that sin. There's nothing that could take that away from us. These guys were still caught up in their guilt. All right, let's move on. Verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Uh, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, "'I'm about to die.'" But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he has promised, an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And the book closes. He, he 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 wraps it up. He ties it with a bow. He says, "Yeah, Joseph lived to be about 110, and he made them promise. Listen, eventually, you got to take me out of here. I don't want to. I don't want to always be here." But he was embalmed in Egypt. He was honored in Egypt. He was, uh, had, a, had a memorial service, a funeral, if you will, in Egypt. He was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Arguably, possibly, based on the history there, you would say he may have been lying in state in Egypt, as there are places. I don't know if you've ever been there. If you go to Tiananmen Square in China I I remember when I was in Beijing I went to Tiananmen Square and you have like the forbidden city over here and you have the square here where all the history is and over here you have this uh, shrine to Chairman Mao and people line up and there's a line all day to walk through the line and see Chairman Mao's body pumped full of formaldehyde and lying in state in a glass coffin and they throw money to him. And that's essentially what they did in Egypt. All of those pyramids and all these great tombs and the crypts and all that, they would, people would be able to go and see their great leaders. And so he was probably lying in state before he was buried in one of those tombs. And he was buried in Egypt. But he made his brothers and all the Israelites swear that he wouldn't remain there forever, that they would take him to, to the promised land. And so ends the book of Genesis. Joseph's in a coffin. His body will be carried out of Egypt uh, during the Exodus. Genesis helps the Israelites to understand where they came from, and he sets them up to understand where they're going. And I was thinking about this every every three three to four months, we do something here called the Next Steps Information Meeting, where if you're new around here, we invite you to come to lunch and hear about the church hear about who we are and where we're going and what we do and all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking about that because uh, over the years, many times, um, someone has said to me, hey, look, someone else can lead that meeting. This is not something you have to do. We have other staff members who could go and teach that class and lead that meeting and all that kind of stuff. But I try to be there every single time. And the reason is selfish. It's because one of the things we do in that meeting is I tell stories about this church's history. I tell stories about these great mile markers that God has set up for us over the years. Times when he provided when there was no other way. Times when he guided and delivered, when he directed, when he answered prayers and did the miracles, when he did things that that only could be attributed to him. And every time I gather with people and I tell them these stories about the things that God has done over the 30 plus years I've been a part of this church, it blows my mind. Every time I walk out of one of those meetings, I walk into those meetings like this. (sighs) I just preached two sermons, and now I'm going to go lead this thing. I walk out of those meetings going... is good. I'm so excited about what God has done in the past because it reminds me that there is a context to where we are right now. The same God who was doing something then is doing something now. And we'll be able to look from ahead back on those days that we're in today and go, wow, look how God was working. That's what he does. That's why it's important for us to take time to read an ancient book like Genesis and to understand our history, and then to look and say, what are the gigantic lessons that we can learn? Not about us, but about God. How can we learn who God is by this study of Genesis? So that's what we're going to do. It's the same is true for your personal testimony, by the way. A lot of us never tell people about what Jesus has done in our lives. A lot of us never talk about how the way we used to be, and how we met Jesus, and what God did to change our lives. Just yesterday, I had this incredible opportunity, was talking with a friend, and had this opportunity to just sit down over a couple of hours and talk with him, and a part of that was me telling him my story. Let me tell you how I know it's true about Jesus. Here's what he's done in my life. Guys, don't let the enemy take that away from you. God has done amazing things in your life. God is transforming you. God has saved you. God has set you free. There are people who need to hear about that. So tell that story. Before we close the book of Genesis, let's get back and remember some huge lessons. This is going to go fast. I'm going to give you some huge lessons. If you're a note taker, these are the things you're going to write down today. Lesson number one from the book of Genesis. We're going to go all the way back to the creation. Here's lesson number one. It comes from Genesis chapter one, verse one, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Lesson number one, our God is the creator of the universe. Now, I know you might go, well, no, duh. I I realize we're sitting in a Christian church preaching from the Bible and that it might be just a given that, of course, God is the creator of the universe. But guys, we live in a society and a culture today in which the vast majority of the people in our culture do not believe that God created the universe. The vast... The the great thinkers of our day are not teaching that there is this God who transcends time, who comes from, uh, who 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 over who oversees uh, everything, who is an overarching figure for all of human history. Probably the greatest scientific mind of our generation is a guy by the name of Stephen Hawking that you've heard of. He his his last book that he wrote. He he finally came out and said what he had been unwilling to say all along. In his previous books about the origins of the universe, he had said things like, you know, the more that we learn, eventually science will lead us to seeing God. But he doesn't say that anymore. What he says now is there is no God and the universe created itself. So let that sink in for a second. His IQ is triple what yours is, I'm just telling you, right? (laughs) Right? He says, the universe created itself. Not only is that the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard, it is also the most unscientific statement I have ever heard from arguably the greatest scientist of our day. Based on no evidence, contrary to all of the evidence, Because he starts from a place that says there is no God and has to therefore come from some place and describe then when where did we come from, he says, well the universe must have created itself. And on top of that brilliant idea that the universe has created itself, when mathematicians come and say it is literally impossible mathematically for the world to exist the way that it does by chance, he and others would say, well probably there's an infinite number of universes out there that we just don't know about. Multiple universe theory. It says that since it's mathematically impossible for even any kind of life, let alone human life, to exist on earth by chance, that if you, if you have enough universes, then that evens out the math so that eventually you'd have a chance. And we're just one of billions and trillions of universes that, you know, exist in some other plane. These are scientists. And we get accused of making leaps of faith. So it's important for us to understand, I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say that God is the creator of the universe. But guys, if that's not true, then nothing we believe matters. If that's not true, then we have no ground to stand on to to think that we understand anything. If it is true that the universe created itself or just happened out of nothing and that there is no God who created it, then life has no purpose. If it's true that there is no God who created the universe then there is no right and no wrong, because there is no person with moral authority over creation. Does that make sense? And therefore, we have to land in a place where we go, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me, which, by the way, is the most popular philosophy of ethics in society today, that each person will decide what is right for them. Do you see what happens when everybody gets to decide what is right for them? We already saw it in the book of Genesis, it says when they got to the place where everybody was doing whatever was right in their own mind, God had to wipe out the world with a flood. when, When everybody does what is right for them and gets to define right for themselves, then here's what happens. The person with the most weapons is right. That's what happens if we remove God from the equation. If it's true that there is no God who created the universe then this is the best things will ever be. Life is utterly meaningless. Life is utterly hopeless. And the destruction of mankind is inevitable. So we might as well just get whatever we can for ourselves because you only live once. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Is that not the prevailing thought in our society today? And how's that working for us? But if Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning God, as all of the evidence attests, as basic common sense suggests, then there are certain implications to that truth. Number one is, if there is a God who created the universe, then He is sovereign over all. That means He is God and I am not. Say amen. Amen. He is God and I am not. What that means is I am subject to him, not vice versa. So let's not make up our own God in our own image that we get to control like a puppet who serves us when we want him to serve us, but we don't serve him. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible created the universe out of nothing. He owns everything. He has all power. He has all authority. And the implications go on and on. I wish I had more time to talk about that, but that's the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Our God is the creator of the universe. Big, big point number two the problem with the world is sin. We're taught this in Genesis also. We don't have to go very far. We get to Genesis chapter three. Everything is perfect. We have a perfect man, a perfect woman living in a perfect paradise and a perfect relationship with God. All of their needs are being met. Everything is fulfilling. There is no need unmet. And what do they do? They decide to rebel against God and become their own gods. And in trying to become their own gods, what they find out is that they throw themselves, their own lives, their family, and all of creation into a downward spiral that continues to spiral today. The problem is sin. I know the politicians want to talk about the problem is uh, um, the economy. The problem is uh, education. The problem is immigration. The problem is uh, racism. The problem is the other party, right? That's what everybody wants to say. I'm telling you guys, below the surface, what the scripture says is the problem is sin. And now I'm just going to get personal. What that means is your problem is sin. That means that repentance has to be a regular part of our lives if we're to live victoriously. Sin is the problem. And that shows its ugly head in many, many ways, right? Um, not just the Genesis 3 account, but everything that happens after that. Here's the thing. C.S. Lewis wrote this amazing book called The Problem of Pain. For any of you who are, who are like philosophical thinkers and have big questions like, you know, um, if God is so good, why do babies die of cancer? Man, that is a good question. That is a very fair question question. If God is so good, why are there so many wars? If God is so good, why is there so much sickness? If God is so good, why is there all this death? If God is so good, how come the world is so bad? People have been asking that question for a long time. I think Lewis did as good a job as any when he wrote The Problem of Pain, and I'm going to just summarize it for you. He's way smarter than me, so read him. But here's what Lewis basically said. The problem is sin, right? Now, listen. I want to be very careful here. If you are weeping at the graveside of your six-month-old child, you do not need to hear a lecture from some Christian about how the problem is sin. What you need is a hug. What you need is someone who cares, someone who will hold your hand, someone who will just weep with you and be broken with you. But if we can back up the camera and look at the big picture for a second and say, all over the world, there is injustice. All over the world, there is suffering. All over the world, there is death. All over the world, there is unrighteous behavior. All over the world, people are being abused. All over the world, terrible things are happening. What is the reason in the big picture, the general reason? The reason is sin. It's Adam and Eve's sin, and it's your sin and it's my sin. The problem is sin. And if we don't face that and we don't talk about that honestly, we're never gonna get to the solution. So Genesis tells us the problem is sin. And by the way, Romans 6.23 tells us that sin brings forth death. So the problem is sin and sin, sin brings forth death. What is the great enemy of human beings? Death. So there's a problem. Number three, big big lesson from the book of Genesis. The solution... Is found in a relationship with God. In fact, if I could do that slide again, I would I would just put a little thing and I'd write in the word only. The solution is only found in a relationship with God. If in fact the problem is sin, the solution is only found in a relationship with with God. We get this illustrated for us over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. Do you remember what was happening during the days of Noah when it says that everybody uh, was, was completely evil right down to their hearts everywhere, and there was only one man who was even seeking after God, and that was Noah? right? It was Noah's relationship with God that set him apart. It wasn't his righteous behavior because he too was sinful, which he proved in the book of Genesis. We saw him sinning in the book of Genesis. God didn't save him because he was perfect. God saved him because of his relationship. And God said, I created mankind so I can have a relationship with men. That's why I want you to exist, is so that I can have a relationship with you and you can have a relationship with me. So Noah's an example of this. The solution is found only in a relationship with God. Abraham is an example of this. Where did God go to find Abraham? Abraham's chapter comes only a couple chapters after Noah's chapter. We got Noah, we got the Tower of Babel, we got everything falling apart. And before long, we're at chapter 11 and already everything has gone to hell in a handbasket after the flood. It's bad already. And where is this guy Abram? He's living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He is a pagan worshiping false gods. When God busts into his life on no effort of Abraham's whatsoever and God introduces himself to Abram and says, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. Come and walk with me. Be in a relationship with me and the problem will be solved. We see it again in the life of Joseph. We see the, the big difference between Joseph and his brothers is that Joseph has a faith relationship with God, and they don't. The solution is found in a relationship with God. Fourth thing, God does have a plan. If nothing else, if you get through the book of Genesis, you should take a deep breath and go, wow, huh, I would have never seen that coming, but God had a plan. God had a plan all along. God has a plan, and he is working it out. From Adam... To Joseph, the whole book of Genesis, God is working out a plan. Even if you don't understand it, God has a plan. Even if you don't know what it is, God has a plan. And God's plan is so much better than ours. But we get to choose whether we're willing to trust Him enough to participate in His plan or whether, like Adam and Eve we decide that we're going to make our own plan and go our own way. We get to decide that. And we get to decide it over and over and over and over again, don't we? Temptation comes our way all the time. We have this choice to make all the time. Am I going to live according to God's plan or am I going to live my own way? Adam and Eve had to face this thing. Cain and Abel give us this example. There's one who has a heart for God and one who doesn't, who takes matters into his own hands. Remember the story of Abraham and Lot and what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and how Lot's whole life just crumbled and fell apart and became this horrific uh, story? And yet Abraham continued to walk with God, right? It comes down to that relationship. God's working out a plan, Joseph, compared to his brothers, Joseph's brothers went their own way, did their own thing, took matters into their own hands. Joseph went with God's plan. How did that work out? God's trying to tell us over and over with all these pictures of all these people who are just like us, when we miss God's best, it's not because God doesn't have a plan for our lives. It's because we are choosing not to walk in that plan. Now, that may be hard to take, you may not like hearing that. It might be easier for you to say, well, God's just made me have a tough life. Things are just not fair to me. You might prefer to look at it that way. But I'm here to tell you that if you look at it by the truth, you will see that it is an incredible blessing to know that God has a plan and that if you're off his plan, it's because you choose to be off his plan. You know why? You get to choose to get back on his plan. He gives you that option. He constantly reaches out to you. He, pro- he constantly says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my burden, take my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He keeps inviting us back. He has a plan. And guys, I don't want to be insensitive and, and obviously I'm trying to rush through this and I don't have time to spend on this, but I, I'm not trying to tell you, oh, quit your whining. That's not my point, but here's my point. You must, in the midst of your difficult circumstances, you must cling to what was true before your circumstances became difficult. God is good. God loves you. God has all power, and God has a plan. Joseph would have never known what was going on. Halfway through his life, he must have just been scratching his head. But he kept believing that God had a plan. Number five, and this is related, God will not be thwarted. That is to say, nobody's going to come cut the legs out from under God. There's not some bigger giant who's going to come up and be able to beat God. There's nobody who's going to be stronger. There's nobody who's going to be wiser. There's nobody who's going to be so cunning that they fool God into something. God will not be thwarted. This God who loves you, this God who has a plan, he is going to carry out his plan. Amen? He's going to. And nothing, including you and I, are going to stop him. Everybody in the book of Genesis, it seems, tried to mess this up. God had this plan. He said, I'm going to, all the way back in Genesis, remember? He said that uh, the serpent is going to bite the heel of the woman's offspring, but the the woman's offspring would crush the serpent's head, right? It's a prophecy about Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to bring about a deliverer. There's one who is going to come, who is going to set right all that has been set wrong. And you're going to have to trust me. I have a plan. I'm working out this plan. And he keeps reminding them how many times did he go back to Abraham? How many times did he go back to Isaac? How many times to Jacob and say, Hey, remember, I promised you something? I have a plan. Remember, I have a plan. Why did he have to keep coming back to them? Because just like you and me, they're not going. They lose sight of God when they see their circumstances. God had a plan and he ultimately brought it about. Adam and Eve tried to mess it up. The people in Noah's day tried to mess it up. The people during the time of Babel tried to mess it up. Abraham thought, well, God's plan's not working. I'll have uh, a son with another woman. And Ishmael came out of that, right? Uh, Remember uh, Isaac knew that God wanted to choose Jacob, but Isaac liked Esau better, so he chose him and messed that whole thing up. Jacob went on his own way and said, I'm not even sure God exists, and if he does, I'm not sure I wanna worship him, I'm gonna go do my life my way. And that didn't work out so good. And the Egyptians tried, right here we saw at the end of uh, Genesis, beginning of Exodus, tried to wipe out the people of God. And it would be great if that was the only time in history that anybody had tried to wipe out the people of God, but that's not the only time. The Canaanites constantly tried to wipe out the people of God. The Babylonians tried to wipe out the people of God. The Assyrians tried to wipe out the people of God. The Romans tried to wipe out the people of God. Remember what Herod did when he heard that there was a king being born to the Jews, he wiped out all of the males three years and under. They kept trying to stop it. The Romans tried to stop it. Herod tried to stop it. As we go fast forward in time, the Nazis tried to wipe out the people of God. People have been trying to stop what God is trying to do for all these millennia, and guess what? God is still on his throne. He has a plan, and he will not be thwarted. Think about Good Friday. Think about Jesus when his head drops and he breathes his last hanging on the cross. Imagine the party that began in hell. Imagine how the demons rejoiced on that day when finally, after all these attempts and all these efforts to stop God's plan, they managed to kill God himself. Imagine how great it seemed to them, right, on Good Friday. But as you know, on the third day, the ground started to shake, the stone started to roll, and God himself came forward from that tomb, and Satan has had his head crushed. God has a plan that will not be thwarted. Number six, and I've been referring to this already. Lots of things don't make sense until the story is complete. Abraham was childish, uh, childish. He was kind of childish. Abraham. Abraham was childless until the scripture tells us his wife was 90 and had always been barren. And as it, as it relates to childbearing, it says... Abraham was a hundred and as good as dead. (laughs) In the days before Little Blue Pills, he was as good as dead. And God gave them a child. Lots of things don't make sense until the story is complete. And then when he had the child, God said, go kill him. And it didn't make sense until the story was complete. Joseph gets sold into slavery. (laughs) How many years did he sit there going, what in the heck is going on? I I wonder sometimes if an actual light bulb above his head lit up (laughs) when his brothers came back to him and he went, oh, I get it, right? God has a plan and often we don't know what it is until the end. Last thing and we'll close with this. The hero of the book of Genesis is Jesus. The whole book is about Jesus. In fact, if we had time, we could look up these passages in the New Testament. But but basically, Colossians 1 says, you know what? Everything that exists, exists because Jesus spoke it into existence. The God who is the creator is also the one who is the deliverer. Uh, God, Jesus is there the whole way. Jesus is there in the picture of Isaac being taken up and sacrificed on the mountain in the very same area where Jesus would later be sacrificed on a mountain, the, the one and only son being sacrificed for the good of the people. And we see over and over and over again this picture that Jesus is the hero of the book of Genesis. Why is that so important? Because God is having Moses write this book so they will have a context looking back and looking forward. They, they, they began to look forward to a Messiah because of this. And we, with 2020 hindsight, look back upon the cross and we see the Messiah there. It's all about Jesus. The creator is the deliverer. You see, to them, the book of Genesis was just a way to say, hey guys, you've messed this up, but I got this. There's going to be a deliverer to come. And just as the universe could not have been created apart from Jesus, by the same token, we can never hope to have life apart from him. It's taken us almost a year to get through 40 sermons on 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. When it's all said and done, we're left with this piercing question, and I leave it with you. How will you respond to the Creator who is also the Deliverer? What place will He be given in your life? What what kind of attention will you give to him? Will he be a side note? Will he be a secondary story? Will he be a minor character? Or will he be as he should be, the king of kings and lord of lords who alone sits on the throne of your life? This comes back down to God getting our attention and going, look, I created everything, even you. And the problem in your life is sin, but I have a deliverer for you. Will you come into a relationship with him? Because the solution is only found in a relationship with God. And that relationship is only possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God. And he's not finished yet. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts that through all of this You've had a plan, and your plan is good, and your plan is right because you are good and you are right. Thank you, God, for the, for the incredible, undeniable evidence of your existence, for your activity in our lives, for your, to the detail of your creation, all the way forward to the way that you interact with us on a personal level, and, and you make each one of our lives a focal point for you, which is astonishing to us. Thank you, God, that... You have always been, that you are the uncreated one, and you're the creator of all things. May we never lose sight of that as we live in a world that is telling a different story. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.